in diners, non-travelers, and digital citizens. Oh, whatever. Yeah, you're you're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and uh, today we're going to give you a quick introduction to an important um, uh, course online um, that you might want to tune into. Uh, plus, two new meets, who knew more meets? But anyhow, uh, we'll start by talking to Ben Kaplan about this uh, extraordinary online course um, that uh, really opens the, the, the whole history and current status of um, a special variety of Jewish cooking. Well, this is so exciting, Ben Kaplan. Um, it's 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 an absolutely amazing lineup of talent, uh, info. It's called A Seat at the Table, A Journey into Jewish Food. And it's being produced by Yivo. And it's history of Jewish food, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you both so much for having me. Um, we're very proud of the, the class that we assembled and the, the team we were able to put together. Uh, a Seat at the Table is uh, a seven-unit online course. Uh, it's, it's pretty unique. It's the only online course that has a comprehensive history of Ashkenazi Jewish food uh, that not only brings together lectures from uh, food scholars and Jewish studies scholars, but also cooking demonstrations, uh, unique archival objects from Yivo's archives, uh, recipes, uh, many different visual elements to create a completely immersive, uh, interactive online experience for anyone who wants to take the class. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could describe Yivo for our listeners. Yeah, who, sure. who gets to look at it and how? Sure. Uh, well, anyone, if you, if you go to yivo.org slash food, you can sign up for the class. Uh, the class is free, uh, so anyone can sign up at any time. And you are never locked out of the class. So you always, once you've signed up, you have access to it at any point. So it's really a resource for anyone who, who wants to engage with the material. And it's um, going to stay there. It's going so, to stay there essentially forever. Yes, we have it up. Uh, it's going to be our plan is to have it up for forever. Uh, and it's definitely free through the end of the year. We made it free uh, at the beginning of the pandemic because we wanted anyone who was at home to have access to it and, you know, for money to not be an issue. So uh, since ever since we made it free, you know, we've had over 10,000 registrants to the course so far, Uh, but people are still signing up uh, and we keep on getting more people signing up. So we're we're very pleased that people from around the world have signed up for the class. So you're going to tell us about your organization. Yes. So YIVO is a library and archive. It was founded in 1925 in Vilna, which was at the time in Poland, is now the capital of Lithuania, Vilnius. Uh, and it was founded as uh, an, an academic center, a place for, for study uh, by Jewish scholars who felt very strongly that, you know, there were millions of, of Yiddish-speaking Jews, Jews living across Eastern Europe, and there wasn't really a, an academic center, an academy, where Yiddish language, culture, Jewish history – could be studied at, at a very high level uh, and that the, the study of this culture and civilization can really be brought, you know, uh, forward for, for current scholarship and future uh, generations. So that's how EVA was founded. And uh, from its founding up until the, uh, you know, brick of World War II, uh, it amassed uh, hundreds of thousands of documents uh, that really told the story of Jewish life primarily in Eastern Europe, but not just in Eastern Europe, elsewhere around the world as well. Uh, so there's this uh, very, you know, dr- dramatic and uh, fascinating story of uh, engaging in this new kind of scholarship and working to, to document Jewish life as it was being lived. Um, and then, of course, you know, with the war, there's uh, a part of the story in which the, many of Yivo's documents were <clears throat> excuse me, stolen by the Nazis and uh, brave individuals risked their lives to smuggle them past the Nazis and to save them. And so there's a, there's a portion of our collection that we have only because people really uh, took this very courageous risk to save the documents. So our, our archives, I was going to ask you one, 
I was going to ask you what happened in 1939, but, but you anticipated my, you know, anticipated my <laughs> question. Sure, sure, yes. There's, there's, um, uh, there's a book about it. It's called the, the Book Smugglers by David Fishman. It's a wonderful, wonderful book that tells this story in detail, but essentially the Nazis uh, engaged in a great deal of cultural plunder. So they, uh, sure, sure. You know, they were going around Europe stealing unique uh, manuscripts and artifacts and all kinds of aspects um, from Jewish culture. And uh, when they arrived in Vilna, they actually had YIVO on their list because they knew of YIVO and they knew that it was a place where they could find a lot of very unique items. Uh, so they, they took over the YIVO building and they made it the headquarters for this looting operation. And they forced a bunch of uh, Jewish intellectuals into, into forced labor to sort through the materials. And it was these group of people who later got nicknamed the paper brigade because they were smuggling papers into the oh. ghetto and burying them and hiding them. Um, it was these individuals who, who smuggled a lot of this material. Some of it uh, they smuggled into crates that the Nazis were actually packing to send to Frankfurt uh, because they thought that they might be saved after the war. Other materials they buried wherever they could, underneath floorboards and bunkers underground. Uh, and then after the war, they returned and dug up a lot of this material. And, and a lot of this material ended up getting sent back to YIVO, which was now based in New York. Um, so I was asking the next question. It's, in amazing, New York. Amazing. it's amazing what people do, huh? It, it really is. And, and also, you know, to, to save a culture, um, people risk their lives every day to, to save others. And they also, there were these people who uh, risked their lives just to save books. Uh, but they felt that from a, from a spiritual, historical, cultural standpoint, these were, these were absolutely essential. Uh, you couldn't have a, a culture without the treasures of, of your culture. Now, now I was dazzled by the... I was dazzled by the list of, um, of, of people in participating in this series. I mean, yes, most are. of them, yes. We, we were just talking about the background organization. We haven't really talked at all about what the purpose was of this particular series of, of sure. videos. Well, I just started talking about it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, happy to tell you about it. Uh, so, so this series... This is our fourth online class, actually. Uh, we've been doing this uh, series since 2016. Our first online class was called Discovering Ashkenaz, which was a survey of uh, Jewish life in Eastern Europe, a historical survey. And we then had a class uh, called Folklore of Ashkenaz, which was uh, on Jewish folklore in Eastern Europe. And then we had a third class called Oh Mama, I'm in Love, which was a global history of Yiddish theater. Uh, yeah. And with each class... Yeah, with each class, we've kind of evolved <clears throat> how we teach it based on the material. So for the Yiddish theater class, for example, we had performances by Yiddish theater actors. It was taught collaboratively amongst Yiddish theater scholars. Um, and we had many different archival objects from the Yiddish theater, you know, playbills, uh, play scripts, all kinds of interesting objects. So for this class, we said food is such an important part of uh, culture in general, and it has a special you know, role in, in Jewish culture and Jewish history. And it's also a very powerful way to teach history because when you start to study uh, a food recipe and you study where did this recipe come from, you know, how did it develop? How did it evolve? How did it change as it moved from geographic location to geographic location? You learn a tremendous amount about the, the nuances of this historical story. Uh, so we took food as our centerpiece as a way of teaching history. And, and also as a way to engage people and, you know, have a learning experience that would be active and not just, you know, passively absorbing the information, but really internalizing the material, bring it into your life in a very direct, visceral way by cooking the food uh, and being able to connect the story with your potentially own family history or your cultural background or just out of, you know, curiosity for a, a different you know, the a diversity of, of cultural backgrounds. Uh, so that's, that was the premise of this class. And we also realized that there wasn't a class that would bring these different voices into conversation. So, you know, that you can catch a lot of cooking shows on Netflix. You can find a lot of online classes on the Internet. But you, there, isn't really, there wasn't really a class like this that um, combined a, a bit of that cooking show element with really 
academically uh, comprehensive historical uh, discussion uh, and made it fun and engaging so that we were really excited to to build all of these elements into the course. Now, what's, what's your role? Are you like the moderator of the show? I'm, I've, been, I've been mostly behind the scenes. I'm director of education at Evo, so oh, okay. right. uh, I'm, I'm tasked with organizing all of our classes in general, and the online series is one of the, the programs that I, I work on. Uh, but, I, yeah, we definitely worked as a team to assemble this broader team of food scholars, chefs, cookbook authors, uh, researchers. Uh, so, so we brought, I helped sort of bring everyone together. Yeah, we'll uh, run through some of those. I keep trying to get that out there. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So uh, Dara Goldstein uh, was our lead scholar on the course. And Dara. Uh, Dara's Gastronomica. Yes, yes, uh, founder of Gastronomica. And, you know, she's a, a, a scholar but also a cookbook author, so she really has a very deep knowledge of food and how to, how to bring everything together. Um, Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yaskowitz of the Gefilteria were our course guides and co-producers. So they do many of the, the food demonstrations, and they were instrumental in uh, helping us build this course out. Uh, and then, you know, we have um, many different people from the Jewish food world, people like Joan Nathan, um, Jane Ziegelman is a wonderful scholar, Leah Koenig, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, uh, the list goes on and on and on. I, I can't remember. Alice Byron, we've over 20 her about of them. five times. <laughs> Mitchell yeah. Davis uh, and James Beard Foundation. Yes, and we also brought in, yes, Mitchell uh, Davis was involved. Uh, we brought in Nikki Russ-Shutterman and Josh Russ-Tupper from Russ and Daughters. Uh, so we have a combination of, again, scholars, chefs, but also people who are actively, you know, restaurateurs, people who are actively engaged in the food world and have an active role in shaping the the broader culinary landscape that is, you know, the contemporary uh, food scene. So well, it was very common. exciting to bring everyone into the same room. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so um, so you you have it developed into episodes, right? Yes, it's seven units. Uh, it starts with the origins of Jewish food, and then works through the development of Ashkenazi Jewish food in Eastern Europe. Uh, it, there's a unit on cookbooks. There's a unit called Not Your Mother's Table, which is what happens in the modern period when, you know, um, Jewish food moves outside of the home into cafes, delis, uh, you know, Catskills kitchens, uh, any, anywhere that's sort of food in a, in a public space. And then we have a unit on food in the popular cultural imagination, so looking at it, Jewish food in, on film and TV, in music, uh, in the press, in advertising. And our last unit is called Intersections. And that's where we get more into Jewish food around the world, uh, how Ashkenazi Jewish food travels to different locations, and contemporary efforts to reimagine and, uh, you know, bring new kinds of uh, fusion uh, cuisine elements and, uh, you know, the, sort of the future of Ashkenazi Jewish food, not just the past, but also where it might be going. Well, Ben, this is very exciting. Could you just repeat how people sign up for this course? Absolutely. You can go to yivo.org slash food, and uh, you can sign up there. We also have an initiative of uh, recipes that we're collecting from, from people around the world. So there's a, there's a form there that you can fill out if, let's say, you know of a, uh, a Jewish family recipe, uh, you can fill out that, that form and tell us where the recipe came from, uh, you know, how it's made, if there's a story associated with it. And we've gotten these phenomenal responses from people all over who tell us their, their stories about the, the food itself. And uh, those, those answers are being collected and preserved in the Evo archives. So, uh, they'll they'll be saved and protected for future generations. Say a hundred years from now, if someone wants to know uh, what someone's uh, take on uh, you know a recipe was in 2020. They can they can go to the Eva archive and and see and uh, you know incorporate it into their understanding. So we're very excited about that initiative too. That's wonderful. 
Well, Ben Kaplan, you're doing a great job there, and um, I'm, I'm so happy to have heard about this. Yeah, we're pleased. Thank we're you. Pleased. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pleased. We're pleased that we're able to get you more more publicity than you already got. <laughs> Thank you both so much. I, we're we're very happy to to you know have the chance to to share it with everyone and uh, to to chat with. I'm happy to chat with you both about it. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Ben. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. I think it's pretty fair to say at this point in time that... um, Things shift to plenty in the culinary world, and um, having new things is not extraordinary. No. But th- this one caught our attention. Our next b- guest. B- both of them caught our attention. Yeah, both of them. Daniel Fagerman of Fagerman Farm. Um, he has a new kind of lamb called Marga, Margra lamb. And he's going to tell well, us which, how it which developed. He, which he compares to uh, Japanese beef wagyu. Yeah, he does. Because of the wagyu of lamb. And then we're going to talk about it. The funny part about it is right, right after that, we, we found someone who is actually raising and dealing with Vermont. With, with, with wagyu in Vermont. So, so anyhow. So we have all kinds of new things for carnivores coming up. Lots of meat. Well, we're talking to Daniel Fagerman, and I'm telling you, I didn't realize that there was this new breed of lamb out there called Magra. Is that correct, Daniel? Magra is is the brand, and the breed of the sheep is uh, Australian white. Yes, Uh, which is, well, I'm... I think I'm going to let you tell this story. It's, it's something I had never seen before. I was caught by the fact that it was presented as the, um, uh, what do you call it? The Wagyu, of, the Wagyu, the of, lamb. Wagyu of, of lamb. Wagyu of, of, of lamb. And got my attention right away. Um, but tell us about this. I, we've, we've talked to people breeding uh Wagyu, 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 Wagyu. Uh, and uh, they did a lot of this um, transplanting of, of fetuses and things. Um, because there was, I can't remember the exact um, um, animals involved, but there was one, the uh, the actual Wagyu was not um, a very good mother. And so that uh, they would transfer the, the fetus into... Another one, I can't remember what it was. Black, Black Angus. Black Angus, who was a good mother. <laughs> now, you've got a story about this Australian white. Let's, why don't you just tell us what it is? So, the, the breed was developed in Australia. It probably started in the early 2000s, and then it was actually established more in 2011 by uh, two brothers uh, in the Blue Mountains. So about three and a half hours west of Sydney, uh-huh. um, they've been holding pole Dorsets for a really long time. And the name of the farm is Patty Kill. And uh, they decided uh, that they wanted to get out of the, the wool breed so much and move into the hair sheep. So these sheep don't actually have uh, what most people think of sheep. It's it's the wool where, you know, you get the fleece. Exactly, and, yeah, yeah. I thought Peter said we were in um, Geelong, and all the sheep were uh, out of the merino because it was wool central. Yeah. yeah. So these so go are ahead. sheep, and they they shed. They might get a little bit what you call woolly looking in the in the winter when it's cold, but in the spring, they shed it all off. Um, and oh, it's is more that like what happens to it? Okay, because they're yeah. not sheared, which makes them happier. He said. Right, it, it's a lot easier to handle. If, like, if you can't sell your wool to make a profit, then it's easier to have a sheep that just sheds it off in the spring naturally. Huh. 
so, no, no, the, um, the, the, the original breed, Paul Dorset, presumably comes from the county of Dorset, which is in southwest England. But how, how, right. how far does well, that trace back? That probably traces back thousands of years. Oh, yeah. The Paul Dorset is an old breed. Um, the, uh, so the, the Australian white actually is made up of two wool, two wool breeds and two hair breeds. Uh, okay. The Paul Dorset, the Texel, uh, and then the Van Rui and the White Dorper. Um, okay. The hair sheep really is, is starting to catch on in, in the uh, meat production side because cause of easier care. Um, so these sheep are strictly for uh, meat. It's a and, funny concept. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so for farmers, just production and everything, it makes it a lot simpler. Um, so uh, when they took the Van Rui originates from South Africa, and it's a fat tail sheep. So it's a hair sheep. and it oh, has those this fat really tail sheep? I know them. They have fat tails. Fat tail, yep. It's like the merino, right? Is, is, it, is merino another word for it? No, they're no, fat uh, tail. Yep, they're a white sheep that uh, has a really large fat tail where they can store their uh, kind of like a camel, I guess. So they're they're originally from South Africa. They're not a very popular. Uh, there's none in the U.S. Um, and then there's few in Australia. Okay, um, all right. So we mix these four breeds together to make this composite breed called Australian White. Uh, the two brothers stumbled across uh, these unique meat. Uh, qualities such as the uh, uh, low fat melting points and the, and the flavor uh, is different um, than your normal lamb. So yeah, just I know. to back it's up, mild. Yes, very mild flavor. So hair sheep like the Dorper is actually very popular in the U.S. A lot of people don't really realize what they're eating. If it's domestic, there's a lot of white Dorper out there, and it's very mild, so it's easier. What I like to say to convert. Uh, like beef eaters and pork eaters to eating lamb because the flavor is much more mild than what they're used to eating uh, wool breed. Right. Um, no, so, were, you, were you growing lambs already? Yes. You're in Alabama. Let's get that straightened out. I mean, you're, you're here in the United States and you're in Alabama, which right. I never think of for sheep breeding, by the way. Yeah. So... <laughs> The the breed I was raising here in the U.S. is called the Katahdin, and it it's, uh, was actually developed here in the uh, uh, Mount, near Mount Katahdin in Maine um, by uh, Mr. Pyle in the 70s, and it's a hair sheep as well. But it, it's made up of a few other breeds uh, across the world. Um, so I actually ran it with guys in Mexico. I travel for a living. Uh, I'm actually an engineer by trade and a farmer by passion, and now it's ah. turned into a lot more than that. <laughs> uh-huh. And so so I was uh, in Mexico uh, doing uh, other and uh, uh, I like to travel and see different, uh, if there's like a sheep expo in the, in the area or other farms I can visit, I try to schedule it together and, and see how these, because there's so many different ways to grow animals. Um, and the different cultures and things around it, uh, it's very interesting. So uh, I ran into the Australians in Mexico at a very large sheep expo. I was there to look at Katahdin's and uh, ran into the Australian white, and they told me about the meat-eating qualities, and it's not really something you think of as a farmer. You don't you, you think about size and quantity, but not so much like right and, uh, and the fat milking points and the the long chain fatty acids, things like that, you just don't think about really as a producer. Now, as an end consumer, you don't necessarily think of it directly that way, but you do when you bite into it and you see how much more tender it is. Uh, the fat doesn't leave a film in your mouth. It makes a large, a, a big difference. Um, so this breed, others stumbled across it, and they worked with the university to, to uh, using very cutting edge uh, uh, scientific uh, technology to like embryo transfer and artificial insemination and then live biopsies. Now that sounds, I know it sounds cruel to do the live biopsies, but these animals are treated with like, they're treated better than most pets 
Um, <laughs> now, these, I was going to ask you, I mean, do they pamper these lambs like they do with the, the um, Wagyu beef? They massage no. them and feed the beer? Right. So the benefit of, of the lambs, and so you, you still slaughter at a normal age, four to five months of age, it'll be about 100 pounds um, or 45 kilograms. And uh, these animals are coming from very large production. So a small farm in Australia, since you guys from Australia you might know, 5,000 head is, the 10,000 head is just a small farm. Where in the U.S., <laughs> that's a very large farm. Right, right. So, yeah, we, went, we, we went to one, um, uh, and, and where was it? Up back. Remember we went to that, the, the sheep oh, farm? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And where was that? I, I don't I don't remember where it was. But they had this um, huge setup, and 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 they were you know, they, they had this they marched them up and and get them artificially inseminated and you know and do that whole thing, and I mean it was mm-hmm. huge. Just I can't remember how they, how many heads there were, but yeah, there were they, lots. They they were way south. They were they were they were somewhere next to the the. Uh, the Murray River, which used to be a big river, it's not so much anymore. Uh huh. But we, right. we we got we got a lecture on how you, how you inseminated sheep. Yeah, we. <laughs> I know yeah. so much about inseminating sheep. <laughs> it, was, it was more than we really it was more than we really needed to know. No, <laughs> I no. didn't really need to know all of that. No, no. The, 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 so the original home of the Margo is in the Blue Mountains. You said Blue Mountains, which okay, is very we know similar. Where that is. It's about fifty miles west of Sydney. Uh, it's no. about three and a half hours drive. It's, it's a good long drive. Yes, yes. They're not. They're not in a desert. Although it's, I, I think it's similar to like Kentucky, Indiana, but a little drier, as far uh-huh. as weather goes. Well, now, um, how long have you been doing this? So I've been involved with Australian White for about uh, two and a half years now. Okay. Um, and so I've imported more ovine genetics than just about any farm, probably any farm or university <laughs> in U.S. history. And it's been uh, a long and difficult one. Uh-huh. It's quite expensive. I asked you earlier on if you... Were you were you running sheep before, or yes, was this yes. I was running. I'm losing you. Can you talk directly into the uh, into your handset or so? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. That's don't. Better. Yeah. Stay stay focused okay. and talk up. Yep. So uh, uh, I'm lost my train of thought. You're, yes, so you're I was talking about. The, uh, I was raising the Katahdin before, and I was looking for something that was more uh, more consistent product. So I also, since I told you my background is engineering, uh, everything's about consistency. When you manufacture something, it ha- when it con- consumers expect everything to be the same. Same with restaurants. You know, if they buy an apple, they want the apple to be the same if they buy a thousand of them. And if it, if you're buying an organ, if you're buying it in New Jersey, they want it the same. Mm-hmm. So it's it's no different with livestock. They want it all to be the same. And that was what I was down in Mexico really looking at was the artificial insemination and embryo transfer, which is really what pushed a lot of the uh, beef industry here in the U.S. to make a, a more consistent animal. Yeah. And um, I do the same with lamb. So lamb, of all the meat consumed in the U.S., lamb is only 0.15% of consumption. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, we have um, in southwestern Pennsylvania, we have um, two really exceptional organic lamb producers. Um, uh, mm-hmm. The one of them is uh, Jamison Farms, who you probably heard of, and the other one is right. um, uh, is um, purebred lamb, which was used to be Elysian Fields and so, until they partnered with um, Thomas Keller. Uh, okay. You know, and and um, who was it? it? Was Elysian Fields sent me uh, sent us some um, boned leg of lamb, 
and uh, and we there are only two of us at home now, and so we cut it into three pieces. But it was still too much for us because he raised his big lambs, much bigger than Jamison Farm, and we we asked all of our friends to come in. We're giving them a free meal, mind you, the cooks to come and have this lamb with us. And do you know how many people wouldn't come that don't like lamb? Right, exactly. It's, it's amazing. Well, have, they, have they actually eaten, eaten lamb before, or they just had a negative stigma that they just I don't know. didn't want to try? I don't know. I don't know. They said yeah. they didn't like it. We knew, we knew there was one. We knew there was one guy who was who was a really good friend, and we used to we used to dine with Ian's wife, their place, our place. We we served him barbecued leg of lamb for probably twenty years. And he finally <laughs> admitted he hated he never, it. He never told us he didn't <laughs> like lamb. Well, my mission with, with Margaret is, and this breed, Australian white breed is I'm building a, a network of farms here in, in the U.S. to help supply it because there's two problems with lamb and just going mainstream with it, uh, especially if you want it to go into much larger restaurants, uh, is uh, there's not enough of it. And then the second problem is the fat melting point is so high. And uh, so I've got the fat melting point. So Australian white breed, uh, it was just a white paper was just released like two or three months ago, just before COVID hit. Uh, oh. that shows uh, your normal lamb is about 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. uh, the fat melting point. And with Australian white, it's about 85 degrees. And so wow. just uh, a reference that Wagyu, the best of Wagyu, I think, is around 72, 73 degrees fat melting point. And, wow. and the fat melting point is really what drives the uh, the meat-eating quality. Yes, when you exactly. lower the fat. It's the flavor, right? Where the flavor comes from. Yeah, it changes the flavor profile because you're now, it's more unsaturated fats versus saturated fats. And, uh, you know, the, the unsaturated fats are the the, uh, the healthier ones, like the omega-3s. Right. And, well, how many people, I mean, do you, uh, do you get, like, licensed to raise this? Or how, what's the system for getting access to raising this kind of lamb? So it's, in the U.S., it's barely, very early stages. Um, Australian white is outside the U.S. As, uh, as well. Actually, China probably may have more Australian whites than anybody. They, because of the meat-eating qualities, they've been putting them into their, what you call a mega farm, 100,000 head or more. And they've been doing it in the beginning. Uh, and in Australia right now, it's probably the fastest-growing breed. And chefs all over are uh, just raving about it if they if they've ever heard about it. So, like for instance, a campaign just started like within a week or two ago. Uh, Mark Best, he's like one of the top chefs in uh, sure. Yeah, and Victor Churchill is the uh, I guess he's the butcher or that that's the butcher that's really sponsoring this Margaret Lamb. I see. Um, and uh, and in, in the U.S., we're just now getting started with it. Uh, Fagerman so it's Farm. very new here. I right. mean, do you what have any high-profile restaurant clients? I guess they've all been closed, huh? Uh, I will, but uh, we really launched this. So I've, I've been raising the breed, so there's two different things, raising the animals and then having the clients, two different businesses, really. Um, when I pushed this out, that's when COVID hit. So everything so far has been completely uh, online. Um, so we ship direct to the door. Um, and we're getting lots of contacts from restaurants who say, well, when we open back up in September, October, which might be hopeful looking right now. <laughs> it's a little bit uh, too hopeful, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, we, but- we have a, a chef friend who has a restaurant, and um, he, he closed when, when the state closed, um, and he just reopened. He was open two days before one of the employees got, came down with COVID, and he had to close oh. up again. Yeah. Now, let's, let's, yeah. let's, be, let's be really direct here. I mean, I, I've never eaten a lamb tenderloin before except in a chop. And, thi- and this Australian white, Margot, you, you, can, you can cut the tenderloin with a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Was that amazing? 
It's so de- it's so, right. it's so delicately flavored. It's quite quite amazing. So yeah, yeah well, a lot of people. It's really easy to convert new people to eating this lamb. Yeah, I think but then it's also, an easy time. Yeah. Um, and there a is a. People, there's one issue though. I mean, I imagine you're going to come in at a really pretty high price point for this. Right. It's it's uh, not inexpensive. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think so. I mean, lamb itself is not, I mean, top quality lamb. It's, it's not, we're not a lot cheap. more expensive. Yeah, we're not a lot more expensive, but it is more expensive, at least at the early stages here. Um, the only negative feedback we get is, you know, some people like, uh, I guess the best analogy, some people like a little bit of salt and some people like a lot of salt. But not a lot of people like a lot of salt. And with lamb, some people really like that strong flavor. And so when they huh. they buy it and they taste it and they're like, oh, I don't have that strong flavor or that strong yeah. odor that they used to, uh, they get a little upset. But for the majority, my my mission is to convert new people into uh, or new make create new lamb connoisseurs, I guess. Um, where it's yeah, not, see, I mean, I I'm I'm in that that the group where uh, I mean, I was raised on lamb, and I mean that's what we always had for the holidays. Um, n- right. Not Christmas, but we had for Easter and you know that sort of stuff, and um, and so you know the expectation it didn't smell like the strong lamb I was used to, and it didn't taste as strong as I was used to. So, but I did not have to be converted, but it was still a really lovely meat. Right. And particularly, right. you don't have that um, what do you, you know that kind of coated. Um, coating in your mouth after eating lamb didn't have that exactly exactly so well so it's I, easy to convert new eaters into eating this lamb and actually if you don't tell them it's lamb after they eat it do. they'll be asking what it is because they know it's not quite beef and uh-huh. uh, yeah no, finally I tell them it's right. lamb, they don't believe it's lamb <laughs> so you need to you need to develop an entire market um, yes, I it's mean, a whole new market. Yeah, yep. it's a whole new category. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to pit this against, you know, my more usual top line organic lamb growers. You know, because they're two different things. Exactly. Just like just like Wagyu doesn't really, it's not really in the same market as Black Angus. Right. You're right. Yeah. No, I mean, is the print? No, I don't know. Are you going to have to sell nose prints and stuff like that? <laughs> the wagyu used to come with little prints of the nose from the animal <laughs> in these fancy restaurants. <laughs> no, no, here's, here's the $64,000 question. Are you, a, are you a grower or a breeder, or are you both? Uh... I would say I'm both. Hmm. Both. So, so you have a you have, you have a you have a business you have one business that says I'm going to convince other lamb farmers that they should buy this livestock. Right. And, and, yep. and then you've got a set of gourmet restaurant chef customers who who, mm-hmm. who are going to it's going to appeal to them because it's so superb from a taste right. standpoint. And, and also, uh, and also straight farm to door too. So, oh, okay. just, yeah, uh, so I mean, how many are there of you in, in, in the U.S.? In the U.S. right now, I'm the I'm the largest grower by far. I'm actually the largest, probably the largest sheep farm in Alabama, if not, and one of the largest in the Southeast. Uh, okay. We're kind of, this geography here, most farms with sheep are uh, 30 to 50 sheep or less, uh, and I have approaching 1,000 right now, and I plan to grow much wow. larger than that. Wow. Um, the majority of that is done with Australian white. But the Australian white, uh, the first group of lambs were born a little over a year ago, and so we're already up to a few well, you're, when I when I uh, uh, 
went online to find out about this uh, Margaret Lamb. Uh, you were the only one that came up. Right. There's there's a couple others. Uh, some of them will be growers, uh, and then have their other. They'll have like a little farmers market things that they'll do. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they're like they only have like a dozen or two or three animals. And now we never resolved this. I mean, how did you get permission to use this and breed? I mean, are they licensing or, or is it open? You anybody? Sort of. Uh, so they're a family that is two brothers, and then they, and the one brother has sons uh, that run. And the, the one brother farm. died, right? The one one after I met them, about six months later, uh, he passed away. Totally okay. unexpected. Uh, he was in good health, and then he had, uh, man, uh, something like a brain aneurysm. He was oh, working wow. outside with one of his nephews, and I think he felt uh, like numbness in his arm. And within two or three hours, he was on a helicopter yeah. being rushed to the hospital and passed away. Um, oh. And so his and the other brother, uh, who now owns the, pretty much the entire thing with his son, his name is Graham. And together they put the kind of a legacy. They put the two names together to make the uh, Margra brand. Okay. okay, got it, got it. Well, we we are so we feel very fortunate that we discovered you. Yes. And we and we and we have been enjoying so much the the sample that you sent us. And, oh, we're uh, having more we, tonight, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are. We're 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 having we're having rump tonight. We had rump. We had rump so last night as well. We're having it two days in a row. <laughs> yep. Hopefully, uh, this spreads like it has everywhere else. And uh, so, basically, we're just two families that work together to push this product. When I found it, I was like, "This is this is the product." Because, like you said, when you feed lamb to people. We ate lamb on a normal basis with the Katahdin breed we had here, which was fine. But like you said, a lot of times people are like, uh, they're a little wishy-washy whether they want to try it and if they like it or not. Uh, yeah. And when I found this product, I was like, man, this is it. This is the one that, that captured uh, the, the, the bigger market, which is the people that are eating pork and, and beef and chicken on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, I mean, you're definitely right. Well, we, 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 we wish you well with the pioneering. I forget whether the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in the front or in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Which, whichever it is, you deserve to be successful, and we we hope there aren't too many arrows in your future. Oh, yeah. Daniel, this has been so much fun for us. We really, I'm, I'm really excited for you, too. So, Thank you. All right. Well, we will... Um, We'll, we'll stay in touch if you have any new developments, and I'm sure we'll get to hear more and more about you. Yes, anytime. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Bye. Next stop, um, the fabled, it's not fabled, it's real, Japanese Wagyu beef. There's a celebrity in the, um, in the beef category. And, well, the, our next guest is, like, Dr. Sheila Patinkin, who was trained as in practice as a pediatrician with, and she does an awful lot of um, specifics about genetics, and she tackled raising the famous Japanese Wagyu beef in Vermont, and she'll tell us about the terroir, and she'll tell us about the, um, um, the whatever you call it, the genetics, um, and What's good and wonderful about it, and this sounds like an exciting adventure. Let's hear Dr. Sheila Patinkin about Vermont Wagyu. Dr. Sheila Patinkin, you're going to give, answer all my questions about what seems to me to be a pretty complicated issue, uh, the issue of Wagyu meat, um, and, well, I guess cows. <laughs> you are the doctor in, in your title is you are a pediatrician. Uh, so um, that will give us a little uh, sort of an interest into some of the, the stories I've heard about these Wagyu cows. Um, to go back to, like, 2006, I mean, how did you happen to buy this property? 
And what motivated you to start breeding these cows? So those are really two separate questions, but the first is that in 2006, I decided I wanted to have some roots a little closer to where I'd gone to high school in Springfield, Vermont, and to be closer to my parents and my siblings that were also still on my grandfather's farm nearby. So I started looking for a place to retire. I had also lost my husband the year prior, so there was a life-changing event that kind of got me going in this direction. My children, all all four of them had left Chicago, which is where I've been practicing medicine, and I ended up looking for some more family support, some more family uh, dynamics here in Vermont, and that brought me back to this farm. I found it and fell in love with it, and the rest is history. As far as the Wagyu is concerned, the second part of that question, that same summer back in 2006, I happened in on a cousin's ranch in Montana, and he was raising Wagyu and Wagyu Cross with Angus. And we chatted a little bit about what to put on our farm if we wanted to graze down our fields. And he mentioned the Wagyu was a nice little niche product, a new breed in the country, and I might do very well with it here. And the rest is history. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of history. I mean, <laughs> let's go back to how many years, centuries, the Wagyu have been um, bred in Japan and for what purpose? So the Wagyu cattle in Japan is basically their, the, the Japanese black cattle, as they call them, which is the breed, the line that I have is their basic line. They have a couple of others. They have red Wagyu, and they have uh, a few other very small numbered um, two lines that are very small in numbers in Japan. But the predominant breed by far and away is the Japanese black cattle Wagyu, Um, Wa meaning um, from Japan and Gyu meaning cow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. So I and think we just there interviewed is over somebody who's a, who's breeding Australian white sheep that don't have wool, bred for meat, um, in uh, where is he? In Louisiana or something? No. He's in Texas. In te- <laughs> he's in Texas. Well, whatever. Everybody's in Texas. No, the everybody's in Vermont. All I'd say, almost half of of all the uh, specialty food products, that, especially the artisanal ones. The people that we interview are from Vermont. That's yeah. interesting. It is a state oh, that loves everywhere. specialty products. Oh, they, yeah. We I have mean, a passion for whatever we do. Well, yeah, and I, did, I just had, um, yesterday was my birthday, and I had a call from our friends, long-time friends, uh, who abandoned their house in Philadelphia and moved to Vermont. They, they live in an old barn. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, and uh, it, so, but, uh, and then we interviewed. Who was the person we interviewed with the um, the English woman rabbit um, who's in Vermont with the jams and jellies? The oh yes, yes, conservative. Yes. Uh, yes, she has a. She calls it a preservatory. Preservatory, and, <laughs> and then and we've interviewed. Um, what's her? Um, Crescent Dragon Wagon. What does she have? <laughs> She's a food writer, I guess. And and but there's Allison Hooper who started the American Cheese Society. She's in Vermont. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everybody's in Vermont. <laughs> so anyhow, so it's a good place to be. Um, it, so, it is a good place to be if you have um, a passion for raising something that's a very high specialty, high niche product. Exactly. So right. Um, the only thing, I think the weather is not so wonderful, is it? Uh, the weather in the winter is not fun, but our cattle have done actually quite well with it. I think that it's one of the reasons, though, as tough as it is to have that kind of a winter, it forces us to have an incredible summer with all the rain, the abundance and rain. The fact that our, our, our season is so short for plants. Mm-hmm that they have to get it all out there, get their protein out there in a very short life cycle. And I think it just helps to build an intense flavor in our, that our grasses have to offer. And I know that sounds a bit much to maybe take in, but I think there's some truth to that. The terroir of Vermont raising a product 
like fine cheeses from cows and, and fine meats from cows or cattle, has a lot to do with the grasses that we have here. And, and goats, too, with a lot of goat cheese makers and so forth that have farms in, in Vermont. It's, I, mean, I think it's a very exciting place. I, I, I don't know if I've ever been at it. I don't know. Well, we we actually invite people. We invite people to come to our farm just because it's just it's a a fun operation to see in in the works. It's an old place. We're actually part of a national historic district here on Parker Hill. Um, Most of the farms houses here date back to the 1790s. So we invite people to come and see what you can do with an old farm, how you can renovate it, how you can renovate the the pastures through rotational grazing and just the science that we put into bringing this farm back, I think, is an awesome story in itself. Now, I, th- I thought that the Japanese were very jealously guarding their Wagyu and, and you couldn't raise them outside of Japan. And so, so what, what, was the, what was the motivation behind was it was it a Japanese initiative or was it an initiative of people like you? Well, I think it was it was a Japanese initiative first. I don't think we knew what they had, and I don't think they knew what they had either at that point in time. And I think what they were looking for was uh, they had been purchasing all their hay from from the United States. They've been purchasing their grain and corn from the United States, and they felt, well, gee, you know, maybe it's easier to raise our wagyu over in the United States. We can park some of them there and ship them back, ship the meat back, and then they realized they let the cat out of the bag and that now Wagyu was getting known in the United States and they had to do something about that and they closed it. So now it's no longer possible to export anything out of Japan that has live Wagyu in it. No semen, no embryos, no cattle. Really? I didn't know that. They, in this case, being, being Japanese farmers? Yes. Yeah, I think, well... You have a trend going on in Japan now where farms are getting bigger and bigger. It used to be small farm operations. But once you started getting these bigger farms and bigger investors behind them, they started looking for cheaper ways to raise their product, hence the move to the United States. And then well, no. uh, now, it's, now it's totally illegal to do any, any exportation of Wagyu out of Japan. Well, we, we used to go to um, a, a Capitol Grill, a chain restaurant, that um, that. If we ordered the wagyu, they had um, they showed us a nose print from the cow. Yeah, that that's was, Japanese style for registering their animals. Is every animal exactly. is kind of like your fingerprint? I think I think the chef of that, that restaurant, I think his quota was like three three pounds of of wagyu every month. So uh, wow. and they stopped. They stopped altogether. Um, there must have been a lot of uh, red tape and complications in getting it because they stopped serving it, took it off the menu. But, but he, ah. he, went, he went. He, he went with uh, beef tartar, with wagyu tartar. Okay. The only way to. I mean, he could. He couldn't put steaks on his menu. One, one, he couldn't one, get one table ordering steaks, and he wouldn't have any more. <laughs> so we have that problem here also is that the, what we can sell all day long is our ribeyes, our New York strips, and our tenderloins. The challenge we have as a small farm is to educate people out there that there's some great lesser steaks, and they're only lesser in sense of price, but not that they really aren't, uh, that they're, they're not inferior, I think, in many ways to those ju- crown jewels, the ribeyes and the New York strips. Um, and this would be the, the flat irons and the tri-tip and the flanks yeah. and yeah. the culotte. They're wonderful, wonderful steaks, and so they that's are. a challenge. We have to educate the public about them. Well, no, we got samples, and we got um, ground one pound of ground beef, and then we got um, smoked chorizo, and you couldn't tell anything about the quality of the beef or the flavor from the smoked chorizo. Made, right. The left, the left of us made a fabulous omelet, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to make sure you get some steak. We'll have to fix that. So, so I mean, because I've judged, I mean, I've judged um, uh, contests, not contests, competitions uh, for grass-fed beef, and boy, the range of difference in, in grass-fed beef is so even from the same general area, like from the whole state. 
There's an enormous difference from um, ranch to ranch. Yes, yes a, a lot has to do with the quality big, of grass. There is a big move in Pennsylvania to uh, to to do you like what you might call gourmet or super super high end meat products of various different kinds. Uh huh. Maybe they're maybe they're copying you guys in Vermont. <laughs> well, well, I, mean, I, I associate Vermont with quality. Period. I, I'm really it's a creative hotbed there. Um, so now, so you got interested in this. You had no background whatsoever in in um, cattle breeding. Not not necessarily for running a farm and managing a farm. I did not, but. My father-in-law raised Red Angus in, outside of Illinois, outside of Chicago in Illinois. Okay. And so we've been around cows. We just, I've never been a cattle manager, um, and that, that was new. But, um, <laughs> totally different. But I'm, I learned. Like, and and I think having, having a genetics background, my, my medical degree is, is in pediatrics, but my research was in genetics, pediatric genetics. So there is a genetic desire or a passion on my part, and that lent itself well to the breeding side of these animals. Uh, yeah, tell us something production. about this. You know, I told you the story that I was told about how this person breeding in, in Texas uh, would transplant the embryos from the, uh, the Japanese Wagyu into uh, Black Angus because... The black Angus were better mothers, and you said there's a, a, some truth in that. I mean, what kind of characteristics are you looking for when you're breeding these? Well, it's true. They are actually pretty good mothers. Their problem is that they don't have an udder to speak of. They have very poor milk oh, that they produce. They just don't have a lot. When you compare, compare it to a Holstein where they're otters are almost dragging on the ground versus a wagyu, which you hardly see the udder, uh-huh. it's a big difference. So the issues with the mothering is that sometimes they just don't, the calves don't get enough milk. My reason for doing embryo production was that it was very expensive to try to find a full-blood live wagyu when I started, but I could find embryos at quite a bit less money and I could start with a herd of Angus and put the Wagyu embryos in them and still get a 100% full-blood Wagyu calf out of the Angus. That's so interesting. The, the entry, the cost of entry into the market was much less going the embryo route to begin with. Now I continue to do the embryo work in order to create more diversity. And also you can grow a herd faster, too, with embryos. One cow can naturally produce one calf every year, but if you flush her for embryos, if you extract some of her embryos, she can maybe have on average five or six cows per year, calves per year, wow. plus one naturally born by, uh, by herself. So one Wagyu cow can suddenly produce six calves in one year. That's and, amazing. And that, that allows you to grow what started with a herd that only had about 120 females. Um, through embryo expansion, you can grow that herd size in the United States quite a bit. And that's yeah, what's happened, in, in fact. Did you invent that procedure, or did you learn it from oh, somebody no. else? No. In fact, one of the guys who taught me did invent it. Um, I think they were doing it back in the, oh, gosh, probably about in the 60s, 70s. And um, fortunately, he was doing... Um, embryo reproduction on uh, on a dairy herd on his Holsteins and exporting his Holstein embryos around the world. But he taught us how to do it. Fortunately, he only lived 10 miles away. So now we, we make our own embryos here, or we produce our own embryos here on the farm. Well, did yeah. you import a, a bull for this? Uh, depends. We'll either use a bull naturally, which we can or do if we feel we have a high-quality one, or we can purchase some semen and artificially inseminate the cow. So yeah, they do uh, that in Australia for the, the for the um, sheep too. I mean, it's it's really a system of waste. Yeah, the poor poor you you don't have any fun at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but, 
I guess that all depends on how you look at it. You do have to, we call it, the, when we send them out to be collected, we call it the love hotel. Now, is this a big business, Sheila? You know, beef in Vermont is hard to be big just because we're a whole bunch of small fields and, and small barns. Um, but I would say it's getting bigger and bigger now that we have changed our meat production from supplying restaurants, which we did back as far as as recently as February. Once COVID hit, um, we had to change all our meat production from going to chefs to suddenly going e-commerce. Everybody's had the same issue. I mean, all the suppliers have had the, um, the, the guy that we get our octopus from, He's now selling Sicilian desserts along with his, his octopus and squid, and, and they sell him salmon and shrimp and stuff because same thing happened. His market was chefs, and they went away. Right. The, big, the, big, the biggest one is probably Chef's Garden. Chef's Garden yeah. is another yeah. one, yeah. So, um, so what, what we're finding is that people really are looking for an experience where they don't have to go shopping outside of their house. Exactly. They can order online and they can get something incredible right from the farm. And that's what we offer. We also offer a, a non-Amazon experience where if you have a problem or a question, you can pick up the phone and they get me. And yeah. I'm usually available about 24 hours a day, unfortunately. So, so I think they're impressed with that, the level of service we're able to offer, and knowing that it's coming right from our farm and who we are. And if we get much bigger, that might have to change, but right now that's the way it is. So, and we yeah, love so, I mean, I've, I've been, I mean, we've been sort of uh, shifting our, our content to cover more of the specialty food uh, industry because uh, there is a definite shift, and I'm not sure that with the opening of restaurants, I don't think the scale will be reached for a long time that we had before, and, um, and people, uh, diners seem to be resistant to it. So uh, there is this alternate market, which is the home cook at this point. And I think it's and I, yeah, I think it's going to it's here to stay too. I don't think it's I, I think it is. I think it is, Anne. I think you're right about that. I don't know that it'll you know as soon as the restaurants are back up and running, some of the business will certainly go back to that. But I think people are making a discovery and they're liking it, and uh, I think we we will definitely continue to grow along those lines. So we're excited about it. We're excited about people like. Um, the two of you that are happy to spread the word about what we're doing and and sure. why we're doing it and it's been it's been a, a an incredible journey I would say since February a very scary oh, yeah. one at first and and on many realms from both the pandemic itself to changing a business and turning it around but I think um, it's it's turning out to be a lot of fun and um, just setting all sorts of records so. You know, I you. think that the you're being on call is, is kind of, I mean, when I call with an order for um, Chef's Garden, I, I, I now know who the, the people are who are in the order-taking order yeah. department, so, so and so finally, I can have continuity. They finally believe us when, they, when we say no carrots. No carrots. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I, have a, I, have a, I have a tough question for you. Okay. What? What's the what's the latest feeling in Japan? Is Vermont raised wagyu as good as Japanese raised or Australian raised wagyu? You know, it's all up to the individual. I don't know what okay. their opinion would be, um, but I think that taste tests over time will tell a story, and I certainly think that if you run them blindly in each of the two countries, you're going to find there's different palettes. So it's hard to say what the future is on that. I do know that every time we enter a taste test or a state contest in this country, we come out at the top or close to the top. I think it's um, whatever we're doing here in Vermont, and again, I made, made the mention that it was part, in part the grasses, but it's also the genetics too. Um, I think that has a role to play in the fact that our, our steaks tend to do quite well. Yeah, you win at everything. <laughs> I've been following your wins, yeah. <laughs> well, I was trying to be a little more humble about it, but yes, we do win everything. Well, we, we, love, the, we love the chorizo also. 
Good. Good. So you have to try the kielbasa. It's a little less peppery, but it's good. And we're about this to come out, I think, next week with a maple-flavored sausage. Seems only right in Vermont Walkie. We should have a maple sausage. Tempt us by sending us some. I will absolutely do that, and I'll send you some steaks, too, so you can try them out and tell me what you think. Sheila, tell me this, though. When you reach a point, this is something I I really think about when I talk to um, small uh, artisanal um, producers. When you're popular, you reach that point, and you've got to scale up so much. How do you handle it? You know, my feeling is then we have to run this farm and be viable at the scale we are now. I think that's important to me. I don't want to expand any more without knowing that this can really run and run well. And I think that we're definitely at that point. Um, I think we've been successful. And and then we can start to think, okay, can we take it to a new level and what will it look like and what would I need to get it to that point? and do I want to get it to that point, too? I mean, that's, those are all a lot of questions that I'd be asking. Would I need more land? Would I need to buy it? Would I need to rent it? Would I basically do what a lot of other entrepreneurs do? Some of the yogurt uh, companies come to mind where they suddenly realize that the brand name is everything, and if they just oversee it and have other people run, it, run their own oh, enterprises yeah. under their name, maybe that's the way to go. I'm not sure I like that. So that's going to take a lot of things before I take it to a, a much bigger step. Right. But we certainly of, played around with it. A lot of people we've interviewed, uh, startups end up selling out to bigger companies. And, hello, um, hello, Miss, hello, Miss Anne. Can I, yes. get, can, I get a, can I get in a word? Yes, the, sorry. The, 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 no, the Vermont Telephone Company is trying to tell us it's time to end the interview. Oh, is that what <laughs> that is? <laughs> okay. Well, Sheila, this has been delightful, and I, I still have a ton of questions about this a mystery product. Well, you're going to have to come visit the farm. Come visit right. us. You can find yes, us on I'm, the website. All those people I know in Vermont, I should certainly. Well, yeah, Sheila, again, look up um, and you'll find us. Yeah, uh, again, it's uh, Dr. Sheila Patinkin, is it? Patinkin? Yes, it is. And it's um, Vermont Wagyu. Dot com. Things keep changing in place. Um, anyhow, that does it for another week, and I guess we'll be back next Sunday, same time. Same, same place. place. And until I, then, I, I expect so. Bye bye.